Well, if you don't know, Southview is the oldest Southern Baptist church in Nebraska. And I'm not going to draw a picture of that. I'm just sticking that up there, okay, for later. We were founded 62 years ago uh, last month. And um, so it's pretty neat for us to have some sort of part of seeing all the churches that have followed after us and to see a church like Calvary start in Kearney is amazing. So we're glad that you are here today to worship with us. And I want to invite you, if you haven't already, to open your Bibles to the book of Zechariah. So it's in the end of the Old Testament. It's, it's uh, the longest of the minor prophets at 14 chapters. It ought to be a little easier to find than some of the other ones that are maybe two pages long. But if you need to use the table of contents in the front of your paper Bible, that's fine. Most of us have trouble finding where Zechariah is. And you've got a minute or two to get there before I get into the exposition of Scripture. When I originally titled this sermon, Service... I have to confess to you that I had a superficial view of these two chapters of Scripture. Because on the surface, these two chapters start with a question about fasting. Remember what had happened, that God had allowed His people to be judged, and in 587, the temple had been torn down, and His people, Judah, at that time was the tribe left, but we'll just say Israel, the people of Israel, were carried off into captivity. And some of them left, and then 70 years later, some of them got to come back and begin the process of rebuilding the temple. And remember, the temple is symbolic of God's presence among the people and his relationship with the people. Well, they got a little sidetracked. They built paneled houses, translate that as nice places for themselves, to live, and they did not complete the temple. So God sends prophets to them and says, hey, you guys better get busy. Because you're neglecting my presence among you, so Haggai and Zechariah are contemporaries. They're prophesying at the same time. And what we have happening here from where we've started and all the way through chapter 1 of Zechariah to chapter 6, the end of chapter 6, is you see on chapter 7, verse 1, it says, In the fourth year of King Darius, the word of the Lord came to Zechariah on the fourth day of the ninth month of the month of Kislev. You're like, what in the world is that? Well, that's an exact date. And that's an exact date two years after Zechariah's previous, well, roundabout two years, but two years after Zechariah's previous uh, prophecy. So there's this two-year gap that has taken place. If we read the context from chapter 7 through chapter 14, you see they did get busy and they did improve on the temple, but they weren't all the way finished yet. Matter of fact, history tells us and other Bible books tell us that they won't finish that for another two years. But this question that we see in chapter 7, verse 1, 2, and 3 about fasting is really just to launch off and to talk something about something deeper. I want to tell you a quick story. I think I've, well, I know I've told it here before. Back in high school, um, my church had an active student ministry, and we had a combination youth pastor, worship pastor. And so as a result, we did youth musicals. You know, we'd, we'd uh, have parts and we'd sing and all that. And then we'd go on tour in the summertime. And in the morning times, we'd do backyard Bible clubs. In the afternoon, we'd get to hang out and rest. And in the evenings, we'd do our musical or put on a concert at some sister church somewhere far afield in Texas or Oklahoma or Arkansas. You know, that's what we did. Well, one year, I played a jock stud. It was acting, right? <laughs> acting. 
And with my letter jacket on, I, I promise you, I looked tougher. And I had thicker hair then that was quite suave for that day and time. And my character was afraid that if he surrendered to Jesus fully, I mean, he was already like the kid that went to church on Wednesday and Sunday and everything like that. But he was afraid if he surrendered to Jesus fully, that he'd turn into like a geek nerd kind of guy and have to stand up and preach in the cafeteria at lunch. And this character portraying the Holy Spirit comes to him and says, and this is when I was 16 years old, and I never forget it, and I'm telling it to you again today. God doesn't want to change your life and make you miserable. God wants to change your heart and make you happy. Now, I would use the word joyous as I've grown, but you get the idea. It's about a change of heart. About a change of heart. So on your outline where it says service there, will you just cross through the word service and write heart? Because if I follow my mode here of being God's people and putting one word after it, I want to talk today about our hearts and our hearts that need to change. Not what we do, but why we do it. You might write, not what we do, but why we do it. Our motivation. Because that's the essence of Zechariah chapter 7 and verse, uh, chapter 8. Is our motivation for why we do what we do. With that in mind, let's look at our scripture memory verse of the month. I want you to read it out with me and we're going to read the reference and the verse and the reference again. And this is from our sermon uh, last week, but let's read it together. Zechariah 4, 6. So he said to me, this is the word of the Lord to Zerubbabel, not by might nor by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord Almighty. Zechariah 4, 6. You might underline or circle that phrase, but by my spirit. And maybe underline, says the Lord Almighty on your outline. Here's why. When I talk to you this morning about a change of heart and about your motivation, if you try to do it just on your own and in your own power, might or power, you're going to be frustrated. It's going to fail. You're going to be beating your head against a wall trying to act like a Christian and trying to do Christian things. But God says to us, it's by His Spirit we're transformed. By His Spirit we have the ability to do what we do, to think what we think. And by His Spirit our hearts are made different. So let's keep that in mind. His Spirit. So I read Zechariah chapter 7, verse 1. Let me read verse 2 and 3 to us. The people of Bethel sent, you got some guys with weird names, Shirazar and Regamelech, together with their men, to entreat the Lord by asking the priest of the house of the Lord Almighty and the prophets, should I mourn and fast in the fifth month as I have done so many years? So here's what's happening Jerusalem, the temple is being rebuilt. And Bethel is about 20 miles away. It's their neighbor. And the folks over in Bethel say, hey, man, things are happening in Jerusalem. They're rebuilding the temple there. It's symbolic of God's presence. They got the priests there. And, you know, we out here in Bethel have been doing our own thing for all these years. And we've been worshiping and we've been keeping this fast on the fifth month. 
Well, it wasn't just one fast, but there was actually four different fasts they'd be keeping, and all four of them were uh, somehow symbolic of the captivity and their time away. But this one in the fifth month was the most important. You see in a couple verses it mentions one in the seventh month, and in chapter 8 it mentions one in the uh, eighth month and the tenth month as well. So there's four different fasts. So they're asking one question, but it has a greater implication. Kind of like when you ask about one thing, but you know that that will knock down some dominoes for some other things, right? So they're asking a question which is legitimate. Should Now that we got this temple, now that you're restoring us, should we still do this religious act of worship, keeping a fast? Then you notice verse 4. Then the word of the Lord Almighty came to me. Look at verse 8. And the word of the Lord again came again to Zechariah. Look at chapter 8, verse 1. Again, the word of the Lord Almighty came to me. Look at chapter 8, verse 18. Again, the word of the Lord Almighty came to me. Zechariah makes it pretty easy for us to see. When we pay attention to repeated phrases... These are the transitions in the scriptures. And this is when God himself is speaking to his people then and us today through Zechariah. Then the word of the Lord came to me. So in other words, God is telling me how to answer them. This isn't out of Zechariah's own mind. Hey, man, you guys need to do things a little different up in here. You need to... This is God speaking through Zechariah. The question that the men asked was a valid question. Should we keep up with our fast? But in a sense, that question may have the motive, kind of like when we ask our teacher or our professor how much we have to study for on the test. I mean, I know we have some teachers here. I know we have some professors here. And a lot of us have been students here, you know. And you're like, do we have to study for the lecture or the book? Or do we have to study for both? And, you know... You've got to love the prof or the teacher that says all of it. Oh, man. We want to know what the minimum is we have to study, right? Because we want to know how much we can play our video games or get on Facebook or how it's going to fit into the rest of our life if we're a non-traditional student and you're a mom and you've got you know, other things else to do. How are you going to make it all work? But it's like they're asking a question about the minimum. Do we have to keep this fast? Can we only do this thing? And why do I say that? Because of how... God answers through Zechariah. We do the same thing. We ask God about what's the minimum I can do to slide by. Consider Isaiah chapter 29, verse 13 and 14. So you can just write down that reference. The Lord said, because these people approach me with their mouths to honor me with lip service, yet their hearts are far from me. Their worship consists of man-made rules learned by rote. Therefore, I will again confound these people with wonder after wonder. The wisdom of their wise men will vanish and the understanding of the perspective will be hidden. So back there in Isaiah, God said through Isaiah, you're trying to do it on your own, your power, your strength. And I'm going to confound you. In other words, you won't be able to understand what's going on. You need to trust me. You need to have a transformation of your heart. It's not about what you do, the religious things you practice. It's about your heart and the desire of your heart in practicing those things. He's not saying don't worship. 
He's saying, take care in the manner in which you worship. Which leads us to our second point on your outline. And that's the question, how pure are my motives? Did I write? You know, oh, I, I, I didn't even say that one. I'm sorry, Richard. How should I worship was the first question. Sorry. Richard's waiting on me to get there and I just skipped ahead. So let's go to the second one. The second question is, how pure are my motives? Look at the three questions that follow here. The word of the Lord came to me, verse 4. Verse 5, ask all the people of the land and the priests. So ask them all. Not just the dudes that are here in front of you, the representatives. Ask all the people of all the land and the priests, the guys that are supposed to know better. They're trained, right? Ask them. When you fasted and mourned in the fifth and seventh month for the past 70 years, was it really for me you fasted? Ouch. I mean, the question begs an answer that it's rhetorical. You're not really doing it for me is what God is asking them. Verse 6. And when you're eating and drinking, were you not just feasting for yourself? So after the fast came a feast. Were you not just making yourself happy and having a party? Verse 7. Are these not the words the Lord proclaimed through the earlier prophets when Jerusalem and its surrounding towns were at rest and the, uh, prosperous and the Negev and the western foothills were settled? Didn't God say this to you? So he's right there asking them about their motives. Why were you doing what you were doing? You might write this down. The problem was not their actions, but the motive behind their actions. They were doing the right thing. They were showing up to every fast, man. We're going to fast fifth month, seventh month, eighth month, tenth month. You tell us to fast, God, we're going to fast. We're there, man. We're fasting. But God asks, were you doing it for the right reasons? What were your motives? What was your heart? Was it just to go through the ritual or was it out of submission and humility was it simply because they were trying to get things from God? Hey, if I go over here and do what God says, maybe when I pray to him, he'll give me what I want over here. I mean, we do that. That's the way we're trained in modern day America. I do something for you. You do something for me and might not just be modern day America. Hey, I think it's not American nature. It's sin nature that we've had even since the Bible time. Was there genuine repentance in their fasting? So tell me how humanity has changed in, you know, 2,000 years. We may be more sophisticated. We may have more technology, but our hearts are the same. God's character is the same as well. It's unchanging. And he sees our problems, our sin problems. So think about yourself personally. Not about wicked people here in Israel that we can get all uppity about and want to be judgmental. Those people in Israel, what were they thinking? Not serving God with the right kind of heart. Think about you in the mirror. Do you just show up and go through things mindlessly? You're here on Sunday morning because you're supposed to be here. You go to Sunday school and you kind of listen, but you're also, you know, doing whatever else in your head or checking things on your phone. I mean, do you, even when you read your Bible and pray at home on your own, 
Have you asked God to give you a heart to really gain from it what he wants rather than just going, okay, I can check that box for today. What are your motives in obeying God? And I use the air quotes there because sometimes we might obey and do the right thing with the wrong motive. In your heart, you can obey God in action, but disobey him in your heart. Did you hear that? You can obey God in your actions, but at the very same time, be disobeying him in your heart. Your bottom is in the pew, but your brain is elsewhere. Your hands are doing what you're supposed to do, but your heart is bitter. Friends, we've all been there. It's part of our human condition. It's called sin. And our motives are not always pure. Truly righteous actions come from truly righteous motives. And truly righteous motives come from a sanctified heart. Think about that classic scripture, 1 Samuel chapter 6, verse 7. Write that down, 1 Samuel chapter 6, verse 7. When the Lord said to Samuel, do not look on his appearance or his height or his stature because I've rejected him. Talking about the big brother. But speaking of David, for the Lord sees not as a man sees. Man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. You might write down, God looks at my heart. God looks at my heart. So if God looks at your heart today as he did then. What should you change? Where should you confess? How should you repent? Consider who God is and what he's called us to. First Chronicles 16, 25 through 27 says this. For great is the Lord and greatly to be praised and he is to be feared above all gods. For all the gods of the people are worthless idols, all the little g gods. But the Lord made the heavens. Splendor and majesty are before him. Strength and joy are in his place. All the other gods we set up are just little g gods. But our God is the true God. And that's the God who asks us to have our hearts confessed and humble before him. And our motives right before him. So let's move to your third question. What does God ask of me? What does God ask of me is your third question on your outline this morning. And it's. Not to abstain from food, but to abstain from sin. You can write that one down. This started with a question about fasting. And what God is asking of them is not to abstain from food, but to abstain from sin. He's asking for their hearts. And when you look at what follows here in uh, chapter 7, verse 8, and then on into chapter 8, they seem to have had a bad habit of mistreating one another. And God says, if your hearts, and this is my summary statement, God says to them, if your hearts truly change, then your behaviors will change. As an aside, write down Isaiah 58 on the, your outline there. You need to go back and read Isaiah chapter 58. A couple hundred years difference in time, but the same problem. Isaiah 58 talks about true fasting and says, no wonder you get upset when you go to church and you want to fight with one another. Because you're hungry, because your fasting's not true fasting. You're doing it because it's ritual. You're not doing it because a relationship with me and your hearts aren't right. So let's go on 
in chapter 7. So back to Zechariah chapter 7 verse 8. And the word of the Lord came again to Zechariah. This is what the Lord Almighty says. And here he begins to tell them what they should do. So I'm going to read through it first and then we'll walk back through it. Administer true justice, show mercy and compassion to one another. Do not oppress the widow of the, or the fatherless, the alien or the poor. In your hearts, do not think evil of each other. Verse 11. But they refused to pay attention and would not listen to the law on their backs and stopped up their ears. They made their hearts as hard as flint and would not listen to the law or the words that the Lord Almighty had sent by His Spirit through the earlier prophets. So the Lord Almighty was very angry. Getting your boss angry or getting your spouse angry, that's one thing. But getting God angry, watch out. Verse 13, when I called, they did not listen. So when they called, I would not listen, says the Lord Almighty. I scattered them with a whirlwind among all the nations where they were strangers. The land was left so desolate behind them that no one could come or go. This is how they made the pleasant land desolate. This is not a pleasant picture. You've got another point on your outline there, and that is list the nine things God asks here of his people. God asks a whole lot more throughout the rest of Scripture. But in this Scripture passage, chapter eight or chapter 7, verses 8 through 14, and we'll skip ahead in a minute to chapter 8, verse 16 through 17, what does God ask of us? What is it that he asks of me? Well, the first one, that's where I'll write, I wanted this. And I don't have terrible handwriting, but just deal with it. True justice. God asks for justice for his people. That those that have would look out for the justice of those who have not. That if it's within your ability or your uh, power to do something that is right for someone else, that you would do it. So justice is in there. Number two. He asked them to uh, show mercy. So if you're writing just one word, you can write the word mercy. You see that in there, chapter 7 and verse 8. It says, administer true justice, show mercy and compassion to one another. Think about God himself. Hebrews 4, 6 4.16, excuse me, says, Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace in our time of need. We have a God that's given us mercy and He asks us to extend that mercy because our hearts have been changed and our motives are right. We will seek to extend mercy to others. And then it says there, Compassion. Compassion is the third thing that God asks of His people. And it's right there in verse 8 again. Compassion to one another. God Himself does that for us. Lamentations 3, 31 through 33. For the Lord will not cast off forever, but though He cause grief, He will have compassion according to the abundance of His steadfast love. For He does not afflict, the heart, uh, afflict from His heart or grieve the children of men. 
God has compassion and he asks us to have compassion. The fourth point is not to oppress. Oppression is taking advantage of someone else by your position, your power, your ability. Psalm 10, verse 17 and 18 says, O Lord, you hear the desire of the afflicted. You will strengthen their heart. You will incline your ear to do justice to the fatherless and the oppressed so that man who is on the earth may strike terror no more. God asks us not to oppress others. Says so right here in Zechariah chapter 7. And then the fifth one is not to think evil. Now this is interesting that it says not to think evil. It doesn't say don't do evil. We even get You've heard me say before that the Hebrew language is not as complex as the Greek language. So in Greek, there's a couple words for think, and we'd be able to more uh, closely parse exactly what this means. And we know that when it comes to sinfulness, our sinfulness is really our action, not just our thoughts. Let's say you get tempted to do something. All of us are going to get tempted. The temptation is not the sin. If you dwell on it and act on it, well, if you dwell on it, it could be sin. If you act on it, it is sin, right? There's a difference. There's a progression. But what God is saying to his people here in Zechariah chapter 7 is not to even think evil. Because if you think evil of someone else or something else or what you're going to do, you very well could do evil. So those are the five from chapter 7, verses 8 through 14. Would you take your eyes with me back to your text in chapter 8, verse 16 and 17? Chapter 8, verse 16 and 17. In the midst of this list of do-nots that we're going to cover in a moment in chapter 8, there is this list of do's. These are the things you are to do. Speak the truth to each other and render true and sound judgments in your courts. Do not plot evil. That is a different Hebrew word than think evil. Do not plot evil against your neighbor and do not love to swear falsely. I hate all this, declares the Lord. So I need to use my eraser here, right? Pull this off of here because we got to add number five or six, seven and eight. So what was the first one there? Remind me. Speak the truth. Amen. So speak truth. Write that one down. That one's not hard for us to know. But it is hard for us sometimes to do, isn't it? It's so easy. To want to just fudge a little bit, make ourselves look better, make it not sound quite so bad. Psalm 25, 5 says, lead me in your truth and teach me. For you are the God of my salvation. For you I wait all day long. Remember whose power are we supposed to be doing this in? Not by might nor by my 
by, not by might nor by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord. If you're having trouble speaking the truth, you need to depend on God's spirit. So the next one is render sound judgment. There's probably a shorter way to say that. But I'm going to use the word scripture uses. In other words, think it through. Do it the biblical way. Don't just jump to the conclusion that is most convenient for you. Jump to the conclusion that stacks up with scripture and honors God. Number eight is don't plot evil. So that's taking that step of going a little further, which is thinking evil of somebody, and you're really thinking it through of how you're going to do it. Yeah, that David Chatwell, I really want to get that guy. It's one thing to say that, but it's another thing to spin out in your mind how you're going to plot evil against sweet Pastor David over here. The final one. Is don't lie. We know we shouldn't do that. I mean, gee whiz. It's in the Ten Commandments, right? It's basic. Don't lie. But God has to remind his people. Then, as we remind us today, this is what we're supposed to do and not do. So there's our list of what does God ask of me. You've got nine things written down, hopefully. At least one of them stands out to you and the Holy Spirit says to you, you need to do differently. Let's move on to your fourth point. So what does God promise me? A moment ago I said the the do nots. But uh, what really happens between the end of chapter 7 and the beginning of chapter 8, chapter 8 verse 1, is that God then promises things are different because chapter seven is about fasting. Chapter eight is about feasting. And it's God saying, if you do what I say you're supposed to do, here's how I'm going to respond to you. Here is how I'm going to bless you. Notice chapter eight. Read with me in verse one. Again, the word of the Lord Almighty came to me. Verse two. This is what the Lord Almighty says. Look down in verse three. This is what the Lord Almighty says. Beginning of verse 4. This is what the Lord Almighty says. Verse 6. This is what the Lord Almighty says. Verse 7. This is what the Lord Almighty says. Verse 9. This is what the Lord Almighty says. Verse 14. This is what the Lord Almighty says. Now, if your Bible's like mine, that began a new chapter, an indentation with each time. This is what the Lord Almighty says. So everybody tell me, this is what, who says this is what the... The Lord Almighty. So remember, when you see the Lord with capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D, that's the Lord God, the sovereign God. So this is what God says to his people. And then you've got 11 things God promises here to his people. 11 things God promises here to his people. That's the next point there, Richard. See if I can squeeze all these on one frame here. Eleven things God promises to his people, and it's in here. Look at verse chapter 8, verse 2 with me. This is what the Lord Almighty says. I am very jealous for Zion. 
When he says he's jealous for us, he is promising his love. His love. Remember, when God's jealous, it's different than our jealous. God's jealous could almost be translated zealous, that he is so in love with us that he has so much zeal for us that nothing's going to stand in the way of his relationship with us. Remember, the God of the whole universe is constantly pursuing a love relationship with you that is real and personal. Why does he take sin so seriously? Because he doesn't want you to be messed up or hurt or hurting anybody else because he loves you. God's love. Look at verse 3. This is what the Lord Almighty says. I will return to Zion and dwell in Jerusalem. Then Jerusalem will be called the city of truth. And the mountain of the Lord Almighty will be called a holy mountain. The second thing God promises. I love this one. His presence. Friends, I learned long ago that presence is powerful. Sometimes it's not about what you say. Sometimes it's better to keep your mouth quiet. But it's always good to be present, to be there for somebody, to physically be present with them if you can be physically present. And if you can't be physically present, to have told them rather than by writing it or by telling them, I'm here for you, I'm praying with you, that they would know your presence. God of the whole universe says that if you have the right kind of heart, and if you worship me with the right kind of motives, then I am going to give you my love. I'm going to give you my presence. Look at verse 4 and 5. This is what the Lord Almighty says. Once again, men and women of a ripe old age will sit in the streets of Jerusalem with the cane in his hand because of his age. The city streets will be filled with boys and girls playing there. What does that mean? When the people were carried off into captivity, the old folks that couldn't make the trip were just left. And they died. Because their families weren't around to take care of them to do everything. What God is saying here is, this is going to be a healthy city with all generations again. It's one thing I love about our church. We got generations, man. We got four generations in here in some families. And that you see that. That we have people of all ages and all different color hairs. And we've got young people up here on stage leading worship. I mean, Myra's a young lady and Anya's a teenager. And, you know, they're up here leading us in worship. And I'm not going to say I'm middle-aged yet. But, you know, hey. Family. That God promises family. His family of faith. Look at verse 6. This is what the Lord Almighty says. It may seem marvelous to the remnant of this people at that time, but will it seem marvelous to me, declares the Lord Almighty. In other words, that I'm going to bring people back, that I'm going to do this. Here's what he's saying there, in my opinion. What is he promising? His sovereignty. See if I can write sovereignty right without spell check on this whiteboard. Sovereignty. God says, I'm in charge of this thing. It's going to go my way. You're not even going to believe it. It's going to be so healthy. Verse 7 and 8, go on. This is what the Lord Almighty says. I will save my people from the countries of the east and the west. I will bring them back to live in Jerusalem. They will be my people and I will be faithful and righteous to them as their God. I'm going to pull out an old school phrase here. Because I already use sovereignty, right? 
is watch care. Watch care. That God is watching over his people. God says, I'm going to take care of my folks. Go on. The sixth one is in verses 9 through 13. This is what the Lord Almighty says. You who now hear these words spoken by the prophets. And he goes on and lays out for them a case. But the short of it is, my sixth one is his blessing. I think I'm running out of space. I started too big here. Shame on me. I said I was going to do that. His blessing. God says, I'm going to bless you. When you come to me with the right heart, the right motive, I will bless you. Verse 14, this is what the Lord Almighty says, Just as I have determined to bring disaster upon you and show no pity to your fathers, so now I have determined to do good to Jerusalem and to Judea. And he names off those things they're supposed to do in verse 16 and 17 that we already looked for. And I'm just going to summarize that, number seven, by saying his good. These are the good things God is going to do. Yes, is that like blessing? Yes, is that sovereign? Is his presence? Yeah, these things all overlap. This is about God bringing the fullness of who he is to meet the fullness of our needs. Verse 18 is a transition. Again, the word of the Lord Almighty came to me. So this is like a later time, but the same vein. This is what the Lord Almighty says, verse 19. The fast of the fourth, fifth, and seventh and tenth month will be joyful and will be glad occasions and happy festivals for Judah. Therefore, love, truth, and peace. Here's what I'm going to put there. Is his joy. God's going to restore the joy of the people. He's going to do for them what they can't do. You know what? I counted that wrong. There's not 11. There's 10. (laughs) (coughs) So scratch that out on your outline where it says 11. I had my transition. And then look at the next one there. Verse 20 and 22. This is what the Lord Almighty says. Many people and inhabitants of the cities yet to come, inhabitants of one city will go to another and say, let us go at once to entreat the Lord and seek the Lord Almighty. I myself am going and many peoples and powerful nations will come to Jerusalem to seek the Lord Almighty and entreat him. This sounds a bit apocalyptic, like end times they're coming. But folks... Come to Jerusalem as the seat of God's presence among his people. And I'm just calling this his attraction. Because God is there and God is blessing his people. Other people will be drawn to that. Why do you go to a new restaurant? Well, maybe it looks nice on the outside. And maybe you like that type of food. But... Maybe you do like me and you pull out Yelp or, you know, Google or something like that or open table and you read the reviews and you say, hey, man, this place sounds good. Ooh, that one sounds really good. You're attracted to it because something good is already there and you want to enjoy that good thing. Quite unlike a restaurant, the presence of God in a place, the presence of God in his among his people will draw other people to him. Friends, I've wondered about our church you know, here we are, and, and we run 200-something in worship every given Sunday. 
And I want to say, God, I believe your presence is here, but what are we doing or not doing that more folks aren't drawn to this place? Well, one thing we could do is we could all invite somebody and invite them again and invite them again and bring our friends and bring our family so that they can hear about God's presence, that they can hear about how their life can be better when they serve God. But the other thing we need to do, the most important thing, is that we, each and every one of us, need to pray that our hearts would be right and our life would be right, so that as representatives of Jesus, who are members of this church, and particularly when we come together to worship, that God's Holy Spirit is present in us. And when He is, all these things, His love, His sovereignty, His watch care, His blessing, His joy, will attract others to this place. That's how. That's how. Look at verse 23, our last one. I know I'm wearing long on you, but we're almost finished. This is what the Lord Almighty says in those days. Ten men from all all languages and nations will take firm hold of one Jew by the hem of his robe and say, let us go with you because we have heard that God is with you. Can you imagine if ten people came up to you and grabbed a hold of your garments and said, what is happening at your church and in your life is so amazing You must take me with you. I called it his worship. Part of what I love about scripture, we see here, friends. What started out as a question about fasting, which seems like it's stuffy and about Old Testament rules and has nothing to do with you and I today. I mean, this is like 2,500 years ago. And none of us are Jews and we don't worship that way. And we got Jesus now and all this stuff. This stuff seems like it's old and crusty. Yet because it's God's word, it's living and active, is it not? And God's Holy Spirit has the same message for you and I today. That it's not about our presence in these pews. It's about our hearts and how we serve him no matter what it is we do. No matter where it is we do it. That God wants Our hearts. Look at your fifth question. Your fifth question is, how should I change today? You had one list of nine things, one list of ten things. That's a lot of lists, man. What one thing out of there did the Holy Spirit say to you? Hey, man, maybe you better consider this. You need to do this a little differently. Write it down. Come on, be bold. Put it down there. What should I change today? And then get your next question up there, Mr. Richard. List the steps in my change process. Friends, we come to church, we ought to walk out knowing something that we should be and do differently. You could walk out of this sermon, you could close your Bible right now and be done with your notes like, yep. And you could totally skip that last point. And you know what? I wonder if God will do anything with you and you just sat here and wasted 40 minutes of your life listening to this sermon. What are you going to do about it? What are the steps going to be? Who's going to help you? How's your life going to change? Because you're seeking to have your whole heart devoted to God. Let's pray. God, our Father, we thank you for your presence among us. And that by your power and through your presence, we have not wasted our time today. And that you've spoken to us truths of Scripture that will change our lives. Not just factoids that make us smarter. 
but things that make us more like Jesus. Because we've surrendered. We've confessed. We've asked your Holy Spirit to change us. That our heart and our motives would be right and who we are. So that what we do would be done with pure motives and a right heart. God, it's our prayer or my prayer that if there's anyone here that hasn't already confessed to you and said, God, will you forgive me of this sin that they do it right now and they'd ask your forgiveness. And that they in their mind would see themselves repenting and turning from that sin and coming back to you and trusting you, walking hand in hand with Jesus so that they might live a life of worship with a heart fully devoted to Him. God, we thank You that You want to change our hearts, that You want to give us real joy, that no matter the circumstances, we can trust You. So, Father, it's our prayer. If there's a soul here today who needs to trust Christ as their Savior, that they'd confess their sins and follow Him today. Father, it's our prayer for those of us who are Christ followers, that we would give ourselves fully to You that our hearts would be fully devoted as your followers as we respond to the continual love relationship you pursue with us. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.